Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview the interdisciplinary research team of Calvin Leong, Jevin Hudson, and Oss Keys. Calvin and Oss are PhD students in human-centered design and engineering at the University of Washington. Jevin is a data justice advocate, human-computer interaction researcher, and recent graduate of the University of Washington School of Law. In this panel, we discuss the motivation and research behind their paper, Surveillance, Stigma, and Sociotechnical Design for HIV. This paper analyzes the approaches that 49 online dating and hookup platforms have taken when designing for HIV disclosure. Calvin, Jevin, and Oss point to bottom-up, communal, and queer approaches for design as a way of potentially making the tension between disclosure and risk easier to safely navigate. Their paper will be published in First Monday's special issue on HIV and AIDS and digital media in the fall. We are grateful to these scholars for their important research and are excited to share our conversation with Calvin, Jevin, and Oss with all of you. All right, we are here today with Jevin Hudson, Calvin Leung, and Oz Keys, and they are all the authors of the paper Surveillance, Stigma, and Sociotechnical Design for HIV. And Jevin's going to start us off by telling us what this paper is about. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having us, Jess. Um, this paper sort of starts from sort of the really complicated position it is to sort of live with HIV in sort of the digital age. Uh, HIV is not only bound up in uh, incredible amounts of individual, personal uh, personal to structural discrimination and stigma, uh, but also sits atop like a really torrid history uh, of violence and particularly surveillance and criminalization. And uh, as sort of HCI researchers, um, some of us with previous experience working on sort of dating platforms, intimate platform design, uh, we're curious about sort of the ways in which uh, dating platforms design for HIV, right? Like HIV is a, 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 like I said, a complicated experience in the outside world and the digital world, uh, but plays out particularly uh, in the context of online dating and sort of digital intimacy. Um, and as researchers, we've seen efforts on dating platforms to say afford individuals the ability to disclose their HIV status, uh, and many of which were sort of taken as an attempt to you know, destigmatize, to otherwise begin a conversation uh, and create opportunities for users to you know, discuss their status openly and in a way that doesn't uh, you know, and sort of result in downstream discrimination. But uh, in sort of our approach to this, we are obviously informed sort of by the critical history of HIV uh, activism, but also uh, the particularly pernicious role the state has played right in surveilling and incarcerating persons with HIV. And that's what sort of struck us in sort of the initial approach to like, look, um, folks who are designing for HIV is there was uh, not a ton of attention to sort of the structural forces at play for folks with HIV. It's not just I'm on a dating platform, right, that I exist in sort of a network of other users who have my information, where that information can go, what it can do to me, how it might result in sort of maybe downstream prosecution or other uh, other sorts of issues, right, with, with, with sort of privacy uh, on these platforms. So that's sort of, if we're sort of how we get to this and sort of the goal for our study was to take a look at um, a broad base of popular platforms uh, to get a sense of what this HIV design work looks like uh, and try to think about, you know, how that impacts issues of HIV surveillance, stigma, criminalization, um, and sort of reflecting on how we do sort of critical socio-technical design. Um, and sort of from there, like the one of our biggest takeaways is like, look, we're not designing <laughs> to think about, uh, we're not designing in a way that's sort of critical of the ways in which HIV exists in the world, particularly with respect to sort of medical legal infrastructures, uh, HIV surveillance, criminalization, and our sort of goal is, you know, we don't necessarily offer the solution, right, to how we navigate disclosure, stigma, uh, surveillance, and criminalization, but rather point towards sort of critical design practices that is like, look, if we are going to design for HIV, if we're going to, you know, make dating platforms work, whether that's through destigmatization or through disclosure, we need to be mindful of the other structures, particularly the state uh, and the ways in which you know private companies exist in operation with the state, with law enforcement, uh, as well as public health authorities, right? So that we you know give greater autonomy and sort of dignity to folks with HIV. So we're not just you know designing to destigmatize without recognizing that the state exists and we need to be cognizant of its you know its consequences. Um, and I guess 
uh, I know you had said about sort of how we sort of personally relate to this work. Um, I've been living with HIV for a number of years, and I think a lot of this comes out of my own sort of personal experience, right? With do I disclose? Who's seeing whether I disclose? Who's going to use this information? Does Grindr have this information? Is it going to other people? How is this going to impact me, right? And it's just such a a complicated balance in a space that's already complicated enough, right? Love is love is hard, right? Love and sex is hard, right? <laughs> um, and these platforms, I think, afford all of these great new opportunities, but I think we sort of forget the sort of complex network that people exist in um, when we're designing for, you know, sort of pro-social ends. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have you all on the show as well, in addition to the fact that this is, based on what I've seen, like a fairly underrepresented uh, I guess, academic pursuit. I haven't seen a lot of papers in the AI space looking at HIV or even uh, dating platforms. Um, and so I think that's just like uh, such an important place for us to, to go into. Uh, and also some of the Twitter posts that you all posted when you were so excited that this article was published uh, were taking that more personal route, um, which is why we wanted for you to talk about like, kind of put a face to it, I guess, of like, why is this important uh, that we talk about? Um, either from your personal experience or uh, from the communities that you're interacting with. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in sort of in bouncing off what I said before, like, like these, like we, we, we can sit as researchers, as academics and sort of think about these problems uh, in the abstract, but they play out, right? There are folks who have been, you know, incarcerated because of their status, right? There are folks who have, you know, suffered uh, various forms of violence and sort of downstream privacy harms, right? And I, I can, you know, I, I sit in a position of privilege, right? I have not been incarcerated. And frankly, like the state does not look for me right for incarceration right I'm not a person of color, color living with HIV right there are other communities in which these these practices play out but I think it's, it's sort of stepping back whether it's as in my role as say, a tech policy advocate or in other areas we need to be critical of our interventions right like if we're going to suggest like we need to go take this route design needs to move this route we need to be both uh, in conversation with folks who are impacted by these issues, right, uh, but also are aware of the ways in which these interventions might, like, reify other, you know, problematic practices, right? Like, if disclosing HIV on Grider means the state's going to know about it, or they're selling this to third-party advertisers and I'm denied insurance or denied a particular rate, right, these are these are things that people are thinking about. These are things that users are thinking about or having to navigate on a daily basis. And we sort of hope to sort of recenter that um, and be you know, critical how we think about platforms, right? Because it's, I don't know, some people might not think that dating apps are you know, important things as we have sort of written. There are both <laughs> uh, a host of individual and structural outcomes that are shaped by how it is we interact uh, in sort of digital intimate spaces. Um, I think it's important that we attune to the folks who like, like living with HIV is not fun in the dating world, right? Like that's like, that is not a fun experience, right? That is an experience filled with stigma, with hatred, with discrimination, with other forms of rejection that like, especially in a, a sphere of intimacy is like deeply, you know, takes a toll on your own sense of self-respect and so forth, right? Um, but on top of all of that, you also have the state, right? You also have these other violent infrastructures, right? That you are now having to navigate on top of, you know, just having HIV, while existing in all my dating, right? And I think we have to think about each of those layers, right? Because even some of this work that might not necessarily attend to those infrastructures are trying to get towards like, how can people with HIV live with dignity and exist in like digital intimate spaces? And I think there's, there's important work. And we are, we, are, we are not the first ones to suggest, you know, designing for these sort of pro-social ends, right? There are folks who have done um, really important work around HIV disclosure and, and dating platforms, and we have to credit them as well. Um, we just want to continue to sort of not only like push that design space to think more critically, but also make sure that as you know, a community of social computing researchers, if we listen to advocates, if we listen to communities, you know, they want to decriminalize HIV, right? They want to remove these sorts of statutes and otherwise think more critically about HIV surveillance. Um, and I think our community has, you know, as a, as a group of you know, social computing researchers, as folks who might work in tech policy, um, we need to be critical of the sort of infrastructures in place that shape and inform not only our research, but you know, the platforms we're thinking about. I, I, I think, uh, I mean, I would echo much of that. Um, I, I think that Jevon is also getting at, like, or at least alluding to indirectly, uh, one of, as I understand it, the, the core questions that you tend to ask people, which is, so how do you think about radicalism? And, and the way Jevon keeps talking about, like, what it means to be radical or what it means to be critical, um, you know, one, one of the things that I think this work tries to do, and one of the reasons that it's important, and also one of the things that makes it, like, big C critical is, 
People think that uh, being critical means uh, showing up and saying, no, that thing's wrong, you're bad, go away. Uh, and my, my joke a lot of the time is, is uh, that uh, practitioners dislike critical scholars for the same reason that uh, surgeons dislike coroners. Uh, as far as they're concerned, we're the ones who show up explaining how they killed their patients. And that never makes you popular. And also it's really tempting to blame you because you're the one who keeps showing up with the death certificates. They were perfectly fine until you showed up. Um, but, but what it means to, to do critical work is not to say that like this thing is bad, right? Like maybe there is uh, a good way of developing like disclosure oriented uh, like efforts to address like um, HIV and transmission on social media platforms. Like maybe there are, safe ways of doing it. Um, but what we mean when we say critical is to uh, sort of take a step back and examine the assumptions that are shaping, like the choices we make, the, uh, the options we see as available to us. Um, so in this case going, hey, like you're thinking about this as a like two actor problem, right? Of like, there's the person you disclose to, and then there's the person disclosing, and there's the interplay between them. But there are a lot of other factors which exist, which you're not thinking of, and you should really, you know, take them into account. Um, and, and, you know, this, this aligns a lot with radicalism, where radicalism is to, is in some ways built around, like, questioning why, not, not necessarily saying, like, we must do X, but asking why we think that X is what we should do, uh, and trying to almost, like, check our working and make sure that like X is actually the best outcome and not just the best outcome we can think of if we leave all of our other assumptions attacked, uh, intact, rather. Yeah, and so I very much came to this project as like kind of a critical design researcher, but then also, I guess you could say an expert user of these apps. Um, I think to your point about uh, the AI community not necessarily thinking about these things or this space. Um, I think related to design and design choices, like I think it's important to recognize that these choices have, you know, a range of consequences for real, like real consequences for real people. I think Jevin just outlined a few of his personal experiences. But to really just emphasize that, like, de yeah, design choices affect people's lives in like real ways, and and sometimes in harmful and in like uh, difficult ways. Um, and so to kind of um, highlight that for people who are making these decisions, I think was also a really important um, aspect of this paper. And so for folks who may not be very familiar with the current issues that are at stake here when it comes to AIV and the stigmatization, could someone speak a little bit about the current power imbalances that exist when it comes to uh, HIV outside of digital technology and then how dating apps might exacerbate some of those power imbalances? Yeah, I mean, like I, you could think about at least to start, like the disproportionate balance between information and power and the state, right? When you're when you're diagnosed with HIV. Um, in many jurisdictions and say for my jurisdiction, like immediately that information is sent to the public health office. Immediately you are then contacted by say a contact tracing worker, which we've you know heard about in these various contexts around COVID, um, but the, the, this contact tracing person from the public health office will quite literally come to you and you have to document every last person that you had slept with in a given period of time, say a year, right, to describe in detail what those sexual encounters were like, right? Where did you ejaculate? Like how many people were there? What time of day? Like th these sorts of things. And then you collect all of that contact information and they tell you either you can call these folks and tell them that they need to get tested or we will anonymously, right? And that's just one sort of, you know, sort of imbalance where you have a person, right? Who's now been diagnosed with a disease that carries its own history, right? Like my, my mother lost most, if not all of her friends, uh, all of her gay friends when she was, uh, when she was my age, right? To this, right? Like you, 
already have a person in a vulnerable position. You then have the state extracting all of this information. And as someone, you know, who's a soon to be privacy attorney, I'm reading all of those things, right? Like I'm able to go through and be like, look, like I know when the state has this, what the state can use it for, what uh, exemptions the state could use, right? Because the state can say for national security reasons, take my HIV data and otherwise do what it wants, right? Um, and that's just like an individual micro level where the state has all this power, all this information because you are a public health risk, right? Um, and where that information exists, I'm not sure, right? Like I, I cannot tell you where that list still sits. Like this was in New York when I was diagnosed. I don't know who has access to that, right? But then when we think about, you know, to platforms, right? Um, you have sort of this imbalance where it's like, look, if you disclose it, it's public, right? Like it's effectively public on the platform. We're not going to take any sort of responsibility for your information, you disclose it, right? Which itself a similar sort of imbalance where I. I am this sort of risky, vulnerable actor that is having to sort of carry the weight, right? Not only carrying the weight of the condition and the stigma that comes with it, right? But having some degree of power or attempting to understand where my information lives, what it can do to me. But for most people who live with HIV, you're not a critical data scholar or a, a privacy lawyer, right? Who might have, say, the, the sort of incumbent tools to even have a sense of that. But even with those tools, you're still powerless, right? Not only to the private organizations that might hold this information, right? But to the state that has this information and can use it for a variety of reasons, right? And we're, we're just talking about the context right now of the United States, right? Like HIV is a, 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 global, um, a global issue and there are global regimes of surveillance, global regimes of incarceration um, that this plays into, right? Um, that you already have a fairly, you know, powerless, you know, at least individual in, in my sort of experience. And then you have, you know, the state and private platforms having, you know, the control over where that information can do, go, right? Um, so that's just maybe a, a little bit of the imbalances, but there are, there are plenty. I mean, we, we can think about particular imbalances, like the sort of like racialized imbalances, right? Um, the ways in which HIV has particularly struck, you know, communities of color and the ways in which the state's sort of a carceral arm has particularly targeted those communities uh, for HIV surveillance and sort of downstream prosecution and incarceration, right? Like it's not necessarily white gays in New York City, right, who are being arrested by, in the, uh, by the police for HIV, right? That's not to discount that. There are hosts of ways in which the NYPD have played out against people in New York, but there are, there are balances in the way in which HIV impacts people and particularly HIV surveillance and, and, and criminalization. Um, it's like, I mean, for, for a lot of folks don't even realize that like Guantanamo Bay, right? Its entire inception was for HIV positive Haitian migrants, right? Like so many parts of our own history are built up the ways in which we have excluded people with HIV, particularly, you know, persons, uh, persons of color and foreign folks with HIV. Um, and it's only until recently, right? Like the Obama administration where some of these immigration-related HIV protocols, right, were sort of dismantled, right? And that sort of goes again into the sort of power imbalance we're thinking about where HIV is not only a, a viral vector, but has a, it's a vector of state power, right? A, a way in which the state can decide where you can go, who you are, who you can talk to, who you can engage with, right? Where you can travel to, right? Um, and in many ways, you know, folks with HIV don't necessarily have the autonomy or the agency to combat that, right, without facing, you know, repercussions either from the state or, you know, just from, from regular people, right? Um, yeah. The, the only two small things I, I guess I would add to that is, is first, the, the, I think it's worth highlighting the way that these inequalities can play out in practice is not just because of the sort of mandatory, like, diagnosis reporting link, but also because of how heavily that's wedded to access to treatment. Um, like if you want access to retroviral meds, then you have to have a diagnosis. They don't just hand them out in the street. Correspondingly, like that uh, process of sort of uh, contact tracing is, is basically inescapable if you want to not just die. Uh, Foucault's concept of like biopolitics is like, very applicable. Um, we give you the right to live, assuming that you do everything exactly the way that you want. Uh, and, and this can particularly difficultly play out, um, you know, when, when other aspects of criminalization come into it. Uh, so for example, uh, we know that there is a, a disproportionate um, sort of infection rate and epidemic in uh, like trans communities, particularly for trans women of color. And I often think when they're talking about sort of contact tracing and everything else, um, if you are someone who is, you know, structurally uh, screwed with to the point where you are dependent on things like sex work for like life, or if you are uh, someone who didn't pick it up through sex at all, who picked it up through, uh, you know, 
intravenous drug use, so on and so forth. Like if the way in which you uh, came to be infected or the way in which you might prove a vector for other people is itself criminalized, irrespective of HIV, how do you disclose that? Like how do you as a sex worker walk into a clinic with a random doctor where the very premise of the interview is that they are legally obliged to pass on some of its contents to the government and to hell with what you want and say, well, I'm a sex worker and I'm doing this thing, which is illegal. And here are all of the people I've done it with. And here are all of the people who have, you know, commissioned sex work and so have also committed a crime. Um, you know, this, this very much rolls downhill. And, and even this phenomenon of sort of widespread context tra uh, contact tracing, like just to contextualize it, um, the thing it always reminds me of is uh, in the UK, so there are uh, different security clearances. Um, I used to be friends with a couple of fancy civil servants, which is the only reason I know this. Um, and the highest one, the one you need, you need to pass to get access to top secret material is called developed vetting. And it involves, amongst other things, an interviewer tracing your previous sexual contacts to, well, work out if any of them are Russian spies. Uh, for someone to gain access to like retrovirals, we require them to undergo an equivalent amount of contact tracing and vetting and interrogation about their private life that we do to give them access to top secret classified government material just by default. And that's fundamentally ridiculous. Yeah, and I, so I, I think about power imbalances kind of on two levels. Um, the first is like a platform level. I think a really, I think the perhaps like easy kind of counter to our argument is like, just don't disclose your status um, on these platforms. Um, and I think to that, I'd say there's this actually like really unfair pressure to disclose your, your status because often you have to like offer up that information in order to kind of unlock like a wider range of sexual and romantic experiences and potential partners. Um, there's this great kind of concept that I think about a lot called privacy unraveling. Um, this is done, work done by like Mark Warner and, and others. Um, but here they, they talk about how like by not disclosing, you know, from an individual not disclosing in like a sea of other people disclosing their statuses, there are assumptions made about you just by not, even just by not saying anything. And so... I think in this example, we can see that, like, regardless of what you do, people are going to base judgments off of you or, or base judgments on you. And so there's this really unfair, yeah, like pressure to just give this information to the platform. Um, I also think about it from an individual level, just thinking about how disclosing your HIV status on these apps, like it you're, you're very much trusting another person, this person that you're sharing this information with, with, I don't know, not to harm you or use this information against you in any way. And so there's also this imbalance, you know, when you're, when you're kind of giving this information out, just because I'd say a majority of dating apps also incorporate location tracking and, you know, Grinder will tell you the distance between you and another person down to like, you know, feet, like a, a really kind of small measurement of, and so thinking about just like personal experiences of like, do I feel safe right now with this person knowing how far I am from them? Um, there's also that kind of like power imbalance in terms of individual to individual. Yeah. I think it's, um, I don't know how many of my friends who are actively using dating apps actually know what data is being tracked and kept and where it's going. Um, so for folks who uh, may be surprised at some of what you all are talking about, could you just give kind of like a dating app 101? Like what is Grindr or Tinder? Like what are they looking at? Um, what are they keeping? Where is that going? And again, that kind of like, why does that matter uh, element? Oh, also, this, how does that connect to the state? As the other part of this is like, how is that information, that data that they're collecting, get, then getting to the state? Um, is it being sold off, kind of, et cetera? 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I can't give you like the full broad brush in the dating apps have a variety of different policies. And as we sort of analyze most that for a number that allow HIV disclosure, uh, only a few actually have HIV specific policies. And most of them tend to be either one, like your information is effectively public. So once it's disclosed on the platform, right, anyone who comes to your account and sees it, it's theirs, right? We, we don't protect against that. Uh, Grindr uh, recently released sort of a statement on third-party uh, data sharing with respect to HIV data. There were multiple controversies uh, where, where, where Grindr's sort of third-party data was being sold to advertisers. Uh, there were some issues uh, where there were uh, HIV researchers who were running access to that data. Um, but, but generally speaking, like anything that's in your profile for the, for, in terms of dating platforms is considered public information. It's as if I wrote it on a sign and then walked out in public. That's how the dating app sort of views the information you're disclosing. Right, they they have the ability right to go to be more protective to create other sorts of protective regime, regimes, uh, but generally speaking, there aren't uh, massive prohibitions on sharing with third parties. Um, I think we we look specifically on like HIV specific disclosures. Not many apps uh, that even allow HIV disclosure address HIV specifically, so it sort of falls into their sort of general you know uh, sort of platform policies. And how it relates to the state is, is a few different ways, right? Like one, like the state can get access to third party to third party data through private companies, right? Uh, second, the state can directly partner with the platform, right, to attempt to get this information for research, which we've seen, uh, you know, sort of spurred a controversy with Grindr, where we had HIV researchers from a state university wanting to access that information, obviously, you know, not super in accordance with user expectations around the use of that data, right? Um, but the state is able to use platforms, whether in sort of uh, by contract, right, and actually engaging the platforms themselves, right, uh, by accessing third-party data. And also, like, the state can use platforms platforms in ways that are actually, you know, against the platform's interests, right? We talk about the ways in which law enforcement have used platforms to actually investigate, right? Whether that's talking to people on platforms, whether for, for drug busts or for HIV, uh, there have been really great reporting on the uh, Egyptian state forces using Grindr to entrap and sort of ensnare, uh, you know, sexual minorities for breaking various, you know, laws uh, around homosexuality and other um, so there's ways in which the state can engage both directly with a platform with third party uh, sorts of folks as, as well as sort of using the platform against say maybe it's terms of service even if that's you know not squarely sort of prohibited. Um, but, but generally speaking, um, dating apps and we sort of conclude as well aren't doing enough. Right, like if we're if we're going to think critically about uh, designing for HIV, there has to be a component of how we protect HIV information, not only from other users on the platform, right, but from third party uh, individuals as well as the state, right. I mean, that's a, a political judgment on the part of the platform, but I think if platforms are serious about social justice and intimacy, which you know, according to some platforms' marketing materials, they are, right, it requires a critical relationship, right, to these sort of external forces, even if they are public health authorities, right. And I think that's a part of our work as well is like we can't assume that public health is just this overriding good in all instances that justify you know the creation of these arms to like well let's just give the state the data because it's just public health right because public health surveillance has resulted in a variety of different forms of harm right but in in too many ways we sort of uh, I don't know, uh, make hygienic or sort of clinicize this sort of notion of if it's public health surveillance, we don't hold it in the same ring when we think about other forms of invasive surveillance, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would just say, like, I agree with everything that Javin said. And I also think that there is a interesting uh, sort of, there, there's an interesting contrast here with this data and with like the grinder reaction. And then with things like the Snowden leaks a few years ago, you know, um, so, so, Minor anecdote, um, Wikipedia ended up suing the NSA over intercepting people's Wikipedia sort of browsing. Uh, and I was actually the researcher and like data analyst who put together all of the information for that brief, uh, which was really interesting because occasionally I wake up and then remember that I sued the NSA once and then probably forget because that's a big thing to think about. Um, but I think it's interesting to compare that to this. like like. It turns out that the US government is tracking what you look up on Wikipedia and instantly a top 10 website is at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals like yelling at the US government. There is legislation introduced, there are Senate hearings, there are New York Times front pages. It gets to the point where the US government has to pass a law retroactively saying that what the NSA did was legal, which is basically as close as the US government gets to fixing something is saying, okay, not saying, okay, that's fucked up, so we're going to stop, but saying that's fucked up, 
oh wait, no, it's not. Take Daxies, no, it's fine. Um, whereas when you look at uh, like the the grinder um, sort of uh, sale to China, uh, or look at like the general HIV like surveillance infrastructure, um, in the case of the grinder sale, like let's be honest, at least fifty percent of the reason that it got any media coverage whatsoever was like the massive sinophobia that's currently going around, particularly in terms of like government relations. Uh, oh, like the Chinese government can't be trusted with this data, but we can. Um, but more generally, like, I don't see any laws being introduced about this data collection or setting minimum standards. I don't see any corporations going to court to push off the gag orders that are on top of the like, user data requests to get this data out. Like, there's a, a lot fewer eyeballs on it and there's a lot less effort. Um, and I can't help but feel that a big part of it is because first it's seen as, as in some ways like naturalized, like the public health infrastructure and the idea of like HIV surveillance is older than the Patriot Act. Um, but second, because like HIV is that disease for queers, like, that's how it's seen, that's how it's treated. And Google has like an organization that uh, cares enough about, uh, you know, tonguing right-wing ring pieces that it appoints the CEO of the Heritage Foundation to its ethics board to make like Newt Gingrich happy, has very little to zero incentive to like go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the US government on the front page of the New York Times and in court for the sake of queer people. like. And, and this, but this just, the, the thing that sort of gets at me the most though is that this disparity is, you know, also uh, makes itself apparent in where we put attention as researchers and also as just like people who can have the ability to phone up their Congress critters and yell at them for not doing things. Um, and, and that is a thing I would like to see a hell of a lot more of, uh, is not just not just people looking at our paper and going like, gee, tech companies should be more self-aware, but also being like, you know, when you, when you found the time to yell at the government for these 15 things, but you were nowhere to be seen on the gay blood ban, which persists, or uh, restrict, like HIV-related restrictions in immigration, or the constant naturalization of surveillance, um, and everyone should read uh, Stephen Muldrum's next paper, which gets at some of the really, really terrifying ways that this is being expanded right now. Uh, it, it does make me, you know, want to yell at more than just Grindr and the US government, but also yell at my colleagues. Yeah, and I'd, I'd also say, I worry that a reaction to this paper and our kind of concerns around state surveillance is that people would say like, this is all conjecture. Like you're all just like making up a problem that doesn't exist. And I think it's important to just recognize that there, you know, the fact that like just a handful of companies own like the, like kind of all the dating apps you can think of, thinking about how there's just this, I guess, database of really personalized sensitive information just in many cases unprotected and then thinking also about the history of criminalization of HIV and to be gay or queer in the US or in the world I think that those things kind of combined cause a lot of concern for um, these communities and it should be a bigger concern for everyone overall um, and so yeah, when, I, I guess I just bring this up to say, like, we're not just like blowing whistles to for the sake of it, right? It's like we're trying to um, make everyone aware of this this thing that is potentially very dangerous for everyone. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the some of the specifics then, so we can get to some action items here for not only the listeners but people at tech companies, people in policy. So, in your paper, you analyzed forty nine dating apps and platforms. Uh, that's a lot, <laughs> so you probably learned quite a bit. I'm sure. I'm curious if you can explain some of the questions that you asked about the design practices in terms of prevention, stigma reduction, policies, 
and then also how those questions can help inform us to build better design practices to help with this destigmatization and um, this uh, HIV prevention in general. Yep, happy to ha happy to chat about that. Uh, so we asked sort of a variety of questions when we sort of approached each of the platforms, right? Uh, squarely around like one, like does the platform allow you to disclose uh, HIV status? Sort of what those options look like, what those disclosures look like, uh, whether there were disclosures around sort of quote unquote safer sex practices, uh, questions around whether or not you could search, sort, or filter uh, based on HIV status or based on sort of like HIV related information, like on say uh, you can indicate on some platforms that you're on prep, which is pre exposed your prophylaxis. Um, I think those sorts of questions, we also ask questions around like, is HIV expressly mentioned in your policy, right? Like what are, you know, the policies protecting this information? If Is it explicit? Um, trying to take it from more of a lay user perspective. It's like, cool, if I'm going to a privacy policy, is there HIV in it? No, for the most part. Um, and happy to, you know, tag Calvin as well onto other uh, sort of variety of questions we so we approach all these platforms sort of documenting. Um, and in large part, I think part of it as well is a lot of these interventions around HIV have been limited to sort of uh, gay platforms, right? Uh, there's the sort of overriding stereotype that like HIV is a sort of a gay man's problem. Uh, it's also a problem for uh, communities of color and uh, women and other people, right? And I think part of our study as well is like, cool, like uh, there, there's some intervention to get a sense of what about the other platforms? Like what's Tinder doing, right? Uh, what's Bumble doing, right? What are these other platforms that we consider to be either generic or otherwise large scale dating platforms? And for the most part, not doing anything. Right, like there, there aren't, uh, as you'll see in sort of one of the charts we have in the paper is for the most part, uh, platforms aren't designing for HIV, right? They're not designing for HIV disclosure, they're not designing in their policies for, there is little to no attention that HIV exists, right? right? Which in some of those sort of reinforcements that we think about, it's like, cool, if all of this intervention is happening on gay platforms, nothing's happening on straight platforms, how might this like reify certain assumptions around who, like who HIV is a problem for, right? Who the user with HIV is, right? Which is itself is a problem, right? Um, in that these other other platforms have ways in which they could engage or otherwise help users who have HIV. Like there are women who live with HIV, there are straight people who live with HIV, right? Um, and so there's sorts of like overarching sorts of things we, we think about and happy if Calvin and other folks want to jump in on that as well. I wouldn't add too much other than saying, you know, two large categories that we looked for were the design features and then the policies, right? And so like you can learn a lot from both of these things and Kind of, I wanted to maybe put some numbers to what Jevin was saying, and so, and so like, you know, we looked at forty nine apps, and like only eight of them mentioned HIV in their policies, and five of those eight were queer specific, and, and honestly, more specifically, uh, geared for gay men, um, and then three more generalized apps um, were the ones that mentioned HIV in their policies. That's really scary to me. Um, the fact that I guess just a majority of apps aren't, I guess, confronting HIV in their policies and protecting their users in that way. Yeah. And, and on that as well, we also tracked, um, and it was just sort of, you know, narrow within like the broader scope of platforms, it's not only just HIV disclosure, like are there affirmative efforts to destigmatize, right? Like what other sort of information is provided around HIV, whether that's uh, attempts to sort of normalize or destigmatize the condition, disclosure around the condition, uh, as well as information like sexual health info, like where can I get tested? What does it mean to have HIV? What does it mean to be HIV undetectable, right? Information that could otherwise, you know, help folks navigate their own condition, their friends' conditions, or just navigating the intimate space are around HIV and, and sort of to Calvin's point as well for the most part it's not happening right for the most part it's limited right uh, uh, to more uh, to platforms targeted towards gay men um, I think some cool design features that we sort of uncover and talk about a little bit um, one of my favorite I just love writing daddy hunt in papers uh, but they have a, a stigma free pledge right where instead of allowing users to disclose their condition right to put the onus on the user to put their information out into the world they sort of reverse it and say like cool are you comfortable interacting with dating or otherwise you know, sexually engaging with someone who has HIV, right? And then you get quite literally a little badge on your on your, on your profile. I, I forget if it's a star or whatnot, and it's your stigma-free pledge, right? And, and, and what I we, what we sort of like about this feature, and I think is you know a positive development, is like cool, right? Instead of asking an individual with HIV to disclose, to put that information out there, to render themselves vulnerable to the harms of all of the folks who are on the platform, the state, private industry, right? Now individuals can create a marker that's like cool, like. I'm not going to like brutally attack you when you disclose your HIV status to me in person, right? Or I'm not going to like reject you in horrible ways, right? Based on you disclosing it in a chat, right? It allows you as a user to like, cool, 
I have to navigate the stigma. I have to navigate all of these other sorts of things around my status. Now I can be like, cool. Like I can readily point out at least five people in say a square mile from my house who like aren't going to hate me because I have HIV, right? Or who like maybe might have the language or the toolkit to just at least talk to me about it, right? Um, and so we also, you know, besides disclosure, we consider these sort of other uh, destigmatizing efforts um, and think that that's a part of it as well, right? That information uh, provided in other sorts of design markers can be a more creative way to allow folks with HIV to sort of live with dignity or otherwise navigate uh, easier, right? It's not necessarily we've solved HIV by having stigma-free patches, right? But still, I think has a big impact for users, right? Particularly if they're trying to find someone without having to do the legwork of, okay, I'm going to talk to this person. Now I need to make sure they have some degree of like progressive understanding about how HIV works and that it's not going to, you know, um, a host of things, so. You know, one of the things that we most uh, appreciated about the paper is that it had this interdisciplinary focus to it. And also for you all as a team, uh, you were coming from different backgrounds, from a law background, from a design background. Um, and I, as we uh, look towards closing, I, the other the third thing, the last thing that I really appreciated about your paper um, was that it seemed like you had some clear design ideas and possibly also legal ideas about what to do about some of these issues and how to um, address them both in an interdisciplinary lens and then uh, also in a comprehensive lens. And I'm thinking specifically in your abstract, uh, you point out that you point to bottom-up communal and queer approaches to design as a way of potentially making uh, that tension easier to navigate, but also it seems like to address some of these deeper concerns. And I'm wondering if you could say more about what those ways might be. Um, I, I, I mean, I guess like, more perhaps tangible design recommendations that we put forth are kind of, you know, just being more explicit, the platform being more explicit about what they're doing with the user's data, um, giving the user a little bit more agency and what happens with that. And um, kind of in, <clears throat> in the deletion process and like the storage of this information kind of making it clear in their policies that they're not going to um, hold on to that forever and like what they will do with what they'll do with that um, information. Great. And to finish out this panel and this discussion, it would be wonderful if all of you could provide just one last comment or um, maybe a piece of advice or just something that embodies some of your biggest takeaways from this project. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll start. I, I think my two sentences or sort of my sum up is one, uh, decriminalize HIV. Like we shouldn't be criminalizing uh, our way out of a pandemic. Uh, I think we were learning this with COVID and I think we've learned this time and time again is that we're not going to solve the HIV crisis uh, with cops. Um, uh, I think on two other levels, right? Um, public health surveillance is not an overriding good. We need to be more creative in the ways in which we sort of build uh, public health surveillance infrastructure. Um, and then sort of my last, and I know this is more than two sentences, uh, but uh, design has to attend for law policy and history. Like we can't, we, we can't be out suggesting how we're going to design the world if we don't attend to the ways in which the world has uh, fundamentally oppressed, subjugated, and otherwise, you know, sort of marginalized a variety of folks of people. Um, uh, yeah, critical technical practice is good. Work interdisciplinarily. Interdisciplinarily, it's great. Um, and Calvin and Oss are awesome. And I, I don't know. It's been, it's been really, it's been a treat working with them. And I think also just unpacking a lot of the personal stuff in this, like just to, you know, to li to live this and then to write about it, I think is uh, cathartic in some ways to be able to share that experience, but also to you know, to attempt to unpack it further, right? Like this isn't the panacea, we have not solved everything. This is the beginning of a, you know, a conversation um, that we hope to support and hope other folks can sort of take and run with and, you know, disarm uh, information and power from the state when possible. I, I would 100% agree that like Calvin and Jevna are awesome. Um, this is one of those cases where truly like the friends you make along the way are the ones you need. Um, Although like I was already friends with both of them. Although I can't, I still can't work out how I know Calvin unless I just like ran into Calvin at like visit days and both of us were like, oh, you look super gay, let's be friends. Um, I, I guess my, my other take, main takeaway though would be to echo what Jevin was saying about like factoring in the state and factoring in history and to sort of like redouble and re-emphasize it. Um, stop just working with the state and assuming that that is the same as it being good. Uh, 
and in fact, this is like a very specific, like almost subtweet. Um, if you do a paper about how you are collaborating with cops on developing new software for tracking sex trafficking victims, and you state that you personally refuse to take an opinion on whether sex work is moral or not, and also the, um, the cops pinky promised that they wouldn't use the software to track down voluntary sex workers, and so you believe them because you are, they are cops, you are a bad person and also an idiot. You should not trust cops. If you are going to trust cops, you should not have a place in our discipline. And if this is bewildering to people who are listening, I would really, really recommend reading Our Enemies in Blue, uh, which is a fantastic book, currently 50% off through uh, Verso and AK Press, on the long history of um, why the police are not your friends. I'm going to take a different spin on this. Um, I think speaking to designers and technologists and builders, right, I think it's important to just recognize that design has a lot of power and it's really easy to, I guess, um, invalidate this work and, and the things that we're kind of challenging here. But like, I just so strongly believe that like design has the ability to reproduce social norms, but then it also has the ability to challenge reality and, and like reshape how we think about HIV or dating or, you know, whatever. And so, I guess, yeah, like tack on to Oz's point, like designers just have this responsibility to factor in the law and like histories of oppression into these design decisions because ultimately they have these real lived experience related consequences for people. And, and I think it's, it's, I guess, easy to forget that design kind of has individual effects on people. So don't forget that, I guess, I'd say. We want to thank you all so much for the work that uh, you all are doing, and we'll make sure to link to uh, the paper and also to uh, your Twitter or wherever people can follow um, your individual research or collective research in the future. Um, and again, just thank you so much for joining us today. We want to thank Calvin, Jevin, and Oss again for joining us today for this great conversation and our first panel, with a special thanks to First Monday for publishing their article, and Kate and Mara for editing the HIV and AIDS edition of the publication. So, Dylan, what is your immediate reaction from this panel? I was really grateful um, for the vulnerability and the openness and, and honesty um, that that everyone on the panel uh, showed up with. I thought it was a really um, down-to-earth conversation about why this matters and why design choices matter in how we design our technology, even when it comes to something like dating apps. Um, and Jess, I don't know if you've been on dating apps recently. Uh, you don't have to disclose. But um, I just, in my experience, I would never think about the massive amounts of data that is being uh, collected and uh, like where, where that's going. And then you take into account, you know, this topic of sexual health and HIV and AIDS. And uh, there are just so many topics that I feel like are not discussed in the same way that they should be uh, when we talk about technology design. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Dylan, this is something that keeps coming up again and again in our interviews and on this show is the different systems of power and how technology plays into those systems of power. And so I'm going to add one more thing to that list of something that is synonymous with power, and that is design decisions. And just like you were saying before, I mean, the people who create these platforms, they probably aren't thinking through the possible unintended consequences or the potential surveillance and incarceration and biopolitics of something as simple as adding a checkbox to a dating app profile. But those decisions have important consequences and those design decisions really matter. Yeah, since this conversation, I've been uh, reflecting on... Um concepts of stigma in technology. And there was uh, 
something from this conversation that really stuck with me about this idea of public health and like the idea of like the common good for public health, especially while like we're recording this during the um, pandemic and how often that, that concept of like, well, this is for the public health gets used to design technology. Um, and when I think it was Jevin who was talking about like all the different ways in which that gets used against people with HIV, that you're constantly reminded that you're not for the public good, that you're not for the public health and you get put in this box and you have to just like constantly disclose and constantly, you know, come out as being HIV positive. Um, and just how complex all, all of that is in terms of stigma and how you design to be liberative for, for folks who are impacted by HIV and not uh, just create more cycles of, of shame and oppression. Yeah, this was even something that Charlton said in our, our most recent episode um, with All Tech is Human when he was talking about, you know, there's there's different roles that computing technology can play in our lives. And it's up to us to decide if we want that role to be harmful, if we want to use technology to help out um, with, you know, systematic oppression and to help create things like a surveillance state and only use it to benefit um, large tech companies and government bodies. Uh, or we can choose to flip the narrative and we can create technologies that empower and, and like you were just saying, you know, liberate and help and create positive benefits for society. And this is a perfect example of, of how to maybe go about doing that in a, a scenario that you might not even think about normally. So for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. Say it again. Stay <laughs> radical. Stay, stay rap. Stay radical. It's pretty good. That one will stick, I think. I have no comment. <laughs>